Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... When women work together, women can do anything. You don't have to like 100% of me or anything else. You just have to think about the ideas and what that means to the way we see ourselves being defined in Australia as women. All-round mover and shaker, businesswoman, campaign director, founder Wendy McCarthy may not have been born an activist, but she sure stumbled into becoming an extremely good one after discovering that her husband wasn't allowed into the hospital to be present at the birth of their first child. For the next five decades, Wendy McCarthy became a most effective advocate and activist on issues important to many women and forced change at a political level. She's co-founded and led organisations like the Women's Electoral Lobby, Family Planning New South Wales. She's been a board director, business founder and executive mentor, and in recent years even helped mastermind a winning electoral campaign. She's what you might call a portfolio entrepreneur. Hope you enjoy part one of our chat. Welcome, Wendy McCarthy, and thank you for joining me on Build It Thou Come. It's just great to have you here. It's really lovely to be here. I've been listening to your podcast nonstop for the last week. Oh, good. Fab. <laughs> good, good. Well, it really is great to have you with us because I want to go over really all the movements, the campaigns, the organisations that you've either founded or helped build. And that's really the spirit of this podcast. But let's start in more recent history, the 2019 campaign that you led to basically overturn New South Wales's very outdated abortion laws. It was all about reproductive rights. How did that come about? I guess the final two-year run came about when we were watching what was happening in America around abortion. And there were women who we've worked together. We're not sort of best friends, but we're best colleagues and absolutely trust each other about sensing what's going on in the world, we women. And we, one of them rang up and said, let's have a meeting and talk about abortion in New South Wales. And part of me thought, oh, I think we've done that, you know, do we need to go through that again? And then she, and I said, well, you sure? And she said, yes, let's talk about it. So just 12 of us met and we talked about what was happening there. And we were very concerned because we realized that between deciding to have the meeting and the meeting, we'd just done our own homework. So many young women thought it was all over and fixed and done. Uh, especially Sydney-based women because they could get access to termination of pregnancy on medical benefits and so they were pretty happy that that was available. Rural women were crossing the border from Victoria or crossing the border from New South Wales to Victoria at Albury to get a termination of pregnancy. They had very little access and it, the fact was it was still on the crimes list and it had been on the crimes list since um, 19, uh, 1890 so meaning you are saying that until 2019 and you decided to take up this campaign, it was still a crime yes. for a, a woman and her doctor in New South Wales to have a termination. To procure a termination of pregnancy was still a felony and both parties could be jailed for up to 10 years. That was the clause. 
And we had heard a little whisper that someone, that was the case with someone in the western suburbs. And of course, it's always the burden of the poorest and the least educated women um, in these issues. And but had anyone actually been prosecuted? Or well, she was in the process of being prosecuted. That's three years, four years ago. And we thought this can't happen. So we decided, we worked on the strategy and we decided it had to go because while ever we were working on a legal precedent, which were the court judgments that had been given in the 70s, we thought that was our finished business, but it turned out it wasn't. We actually had to change the law. And New South Wales... Um, was watching in Queensland and they changed the law for the same reason. Victoria had done it a couple of years before and South Australia was about to start um, changing theirs. And I think that we realised then that it had to be a very strategic campaign and we worked very, very quietly and we, as the next state election So when you say that, do you mean when you work quietly, do you lobby individual members of parliament who are going to be influential in this debate? Well, first of all, we we worked out together what the strategy would be. We needed all the organisations in health to support us. We needed to tell the government how, uh, when we were going to pull on this campaign and we decided it would be after the election, but that we wanted their positions very clearly staked before the election. And we knew that we had to gather the, the, a, a whole lot of people to be sure that the research was still constant since the timing in, 19, in 1980s, which was the last piece of national research, which said 75% of women and men believed that abortion was a matter between a woman and her doctor. So that's what we went for. And over that time, we did it in a very strategic procedural way. And at the same time, the government agreed, and led by Alex Greenwich, to have a cross-party group. It's the first time they had, I think, 16 members, cross-party to say this law has to change. I went to see the Minister for Health um, straight after the election, like two weeks, and said, no, sorry, we, we sent a letter before. I went to see him. And he said, it's okay, it's going to happen. So you look after the community and we'll look after the parliament. And really, that's how it rolled out. It was it was a hideous experience at one level. Why? Because the politicians were beaten up by the men in dresses and the forces of darkness of the right to life. There were 100,000 letters sent to them and the, and the particular leaders of the campaign were really bullied in their electorate. It was terrifying. I mean, we didn't expect that level, which showed us what a good time it was to do it. And it was very, very tough and much longer. It was very hard on the Premier, who never wavered, um, Berejiklian, Gladys Berejiklian, never wavered, but it, uh, instead of a two-week process, was what, what we thought it was, it turned out to be six weeks and it was very, very hard. And I think people people read things into Hansard. I sat there for about 30 hours, I think, listening to Parliament. And I look at some of the members of Parliament now and I think I remember everything you said. I watch them and I think, don't don't try and kid me, Bate. I've, I've watched you and performed in Parliament. And they read things into Hansard that were, you know, 20 years out of date and this sort of thing, horrible, ugly things to frighten people. But every now and then you should do, we should do a campaign just to remind ourselves that whatever we in our bubbles think, there are other people think differently. Yeah, exactly. And it took a very strong campaign that it you did. 
built up with others. I mean, that's a story that's really turned full circle for you, hasn't it? Because you started with those sorts of issues, uh, a woman's right to reproductive rights, back in, what, 1972. So you have really made your mark in advocacy, being an entrepreneur by building support and consensus for movements or issues, really, I guess, starting with your involvement in WELL, the Women's Electoral Lobby in the early 70s, which you detail so wonderfully in your book, um, your new memoir that's out. Um, I'll give it a plug, of course. But so how did you help found WEL? Well, it goes back really a little bit earlier. When I came back to Australia, um, with my husband, we'd been living overseas for three years, and I changed. There's no doubt about that because I was, you know, three years older, and I taught in London, I taught in Pittsburgh, and I'd started reading women's um, literature and watching watching how women were seen in other societies. I don't think I was consciously doing that, but there's no doubt subconsciously I could see that how to be female in America wasn't necessarily how we were female here, and what our expectations were, and the same with London. So Do you when, mean, in a sense, your kind of consciousness was raised? A- absolutely. And when I got back here and I was just pregnant and I was very excited about it and I knew that I wanted to have Gordon present with me, my husband, at the birth of our first child. And none of my friends had done that who'd had babies while I was away. And when I went to... All the men were kind of banished from the birthing uh, that, that's suite. Right. yes. Yeah. And... And so I went in pursuit of somebody, a doctor, an obstetrician who would um, encourage him to be there, and I found one. And it didn't take very long, as it turned out, but I was helped by a group called the Childbirth Education Association. So that was my first lobby group. And the Childbirth Education Association, which was small but vigorous and active, and we did have our babies there, and they managed the first birth on Channel 10, um, live birth, and I mean, we're talking in the sixties. And to I, demonstrate what to, to psychoprophylaxis, which was a controlled breathing way of having babies, and and drug free. I mean, you could have them if you wanted, but the idea was to, not to have them, and with your partner present. And you know that it was. I, I thought it was magical. So he did a lot of exercise and a lot of physios and doctors turned out to be involved. But anyway, we. So that was the first one, and then they asked me to go to the first meeting of abortion law reform. And somebody said to me, you know, it's weird, why would you go to abortion law reform and you're talking about childbirth? And I said, because it's about choice in birthing, and the choice has to include whether you want to birth and whether you birth deliberately. And that led me to a group of women who uh, were convened a meeting and who hooked up with an, a Victorian woman called Beatrice Faust who had set up this thing called the Women's Electoral Lobby. And at that first meeting, which was under the guidance of abortion law reform, Beatrice spoke really passionately about having a scorecard on everyone standing for parliament in that year for so the it 72 became very elections. much a political lobby group. It was a very political lobby group. We wanted to hear how the candidates for parliament, not just the men, there weren't very many women, but there were some, how they saw women politically, what they saw as women's needs and aspirations in a political sense and what their views were. And armies of women 
just joined. It was the right moment. That was the right idea. It was the zeitgeist. This was sort of early 70s, 71. This was 71, 72. How did you build policy? How did you fund WEL? Because it did become a very powerful it was a very really group, didn't it? I think it was undoubtedly the election changer in the 72 election for Whitlam. And various political scientists have written that since, that if there was one single difference in a campaign, it was then. And I think we're looking at something like that now. So you sorry, you're saying back then in Whitlam's election, women's issues and the power that the women's electoral lobby sort of engendered in the community helped Whitlam get elected? Yes, I think it did because it exposed the attitudes of many politicians towards women's issues, which was ignorance, lack of interest, indifference, um, why would you want anything separate? And... I think it was a huge wake-up call and, of course, Vietnam was on at the time and, you know, I had a brother who'd been a conscript in Vietnam and and many of us did, but also we were the first generation of university-educated women and we suddenly found ourselves marginalised once we had children. So we had a lot of energy and we had opportunities. It was a really domestic thing, you know, the photographs in the book were in our kitchen and, you know, they're all kitchen tables, kitchen cabinets. And we just threw ourselves energetically into that. So when you joined that or when you helped found that, was it a big vision? Did you think, oh, we're going to change Australia for women with this group? Or was it, oh, we'll just see how we go with this election, see if we can get a few policies that help women? I don't think I thought past about two weeks in those days, Helen. When we called a meeting, 40 people came, you know, and the fact is, I didn't know most of them, nor did anyone. Right. So it, it was, was just, almost as though people fell over yeah. the information. But really, it was a. It was they were hungry it. for it. It was hungry time, and people just wanted to know how women could exert an influence on legislative change because we had the shopping list. You know, girls weren't finishing high school. Abortion and contraception weren't available. There was a, you know, there was a cosmetics tax on the pill. That was a 30% tax on the oral contraceptive, which meant, again, other than middle-class women couldn't afford it. There were no family health clinics. And it was also a worldwide time of curiosity and political activity for women. I was going to ask you, on from that sort of picture that you just painted, I mean, what were the keys, I guess, to making well work as an activist and an advocacy group for women at the time? Just paint us more of a picture because I think young um, young people don't sort of remember, or I mean, obviously they weren't around, but yeah. they don't understand that it was pretty difficult for women, both on a, a, a sexism point of view, but also actually being stopped from doing things and people never well, first of all, thought that, that they could. So in the Commonwealth Public Service you lost. You couldn't work once you were married. You had to stop work. So and that, that was, was still uh, there in the no, early seventies. That, that was there in, um, in until the late sixties, and in teaching in New South Wales, it was there until the, around about that time. And I can't remember. I think it was nineteen seventy that changed. I might be wrong on that, but although it wasn't legislatively there, it was attitudinally there. So you were disapproved of if you went back to work after you'd had a child. I mean, even the clerk who interviewed me when I was getting a job, trying to get a job, 
And I said, you know, I'm just come back. I've been in New South Wales for three years, but I'm looking for work. And then I confided in him, my joy that I just found out I was pregnant. And his face fell and he said, look, well, you, I hope you're not thinking of going back to work. And I said, yes, I am. I want to start work now. And he said, I don't, I don't advise it. And, you know, it, and, and that's enough to knock, you know, it knocks the stuffing out of you really. And you think, well, what am I doing? Am I doing something terrible to go to my child? What am I doing? So, it well was about women who found colleagues, friends, fellow travellers, not through their husbands, until then husbands and postcodes had defined where women lived, how who they met. And I mean, I was the enabler of my husband's career as most of my friends were. You know, we did the dinner parties and the launches, we minded the children, we didn't go back to work. And then we're and then we're saying, Well, we're educated. You know, we love careers. Where was it written? Well, it was written by Bowlby and psychiatrists who said the children would be latchkey children and they'd be damaged for life and so on. You know, I look at mine, I think, you know, might have eaten too many lollies on the campaign trail, but basically they're okay. And our mothers thought that too. Our, my, my mother and mother-in-law counseled me strongly not to go to, back to work. Because it might damage the children or it would hurt the family. Oh, and offended them, and it said it reflected on my husband. Couldn't he? Re- couldn't he keep me? As one of the original founders of the Women's Electoral Lobby, well, leading up to that Gough Whitlam election in '72, do you feel you helped found and build a movement yes. for women yes. to find their yes, voice and have political power and yes. influence? And they're still there. And they're still working away on things. They come and go in proximity. They're still an important educational group. They're still an important lobby group. The difference that happened with the demise of Well, as you know, I think it had about three and a half thousand members. That was more than the country party had at the time. And of course, we were an, enabled in that Which time. Which was the precursor to the National Party the National for those party who are too so young yet. to remember. <laughs> but also remember, against um, Whitlam was McMahon. Well, he would have ha- had to be the most hopeless prime minister, and he kept deferring when all the things we asked him to do, he listened to us for a bit, but then he just he, he just didn't get it. And so Whitlam gave us his ear, his listening ear, and he wanted women, and he had a strong wife who wanted those sorts of things. So it was much easier. So those women have stayed in touch, and and they they have, you know, you can call it the sisterhood, you can call it friendship, you can call it collegiate. But they worked with, they worked together. And what I say to women now is when women work together, women can do anything. Don't, you know, I, so I don't like your clothes, you know, I don't like your hair. And I, I, I'm not interested really. I'm just interested in, uh, you don't have to like 100% of me or anything else. You just have to think about the ideas and what that means to the way we see ourselves being defined in Australia as women. And if we don't have our own definition, you're talking about build it here, and Beyonce talks about construct your own stage. But if we don't have our own construct of who we are, how can we be that? And I think that's what Whitlam gave us a vision, and he had women in his cabinet, Susan Ryan. Um, He had... He gave them responsibility and he gave us the opportunity and the funds to dream. He took the tax. The first thing he did in his three months of being Prime Minister 
was to take the tax off the oral contraceptive. It's very symbolic. It says you can be sexual without danger um, and without being viewed poorly, and it's between you and your doctor. And he funded family planning, and it was a time through the world when that needed to happen. Well, on from that, and I know I'm jumping because you've had such a varied career, a portfolio career, I think um, you and many others call it, Wendy, but you became a key senior executive and a board director at various times of Family Planning New South Wales and then the Australian body of family planning. Now, you did become a major driver of getting sex education out to a much wider audience, into schools, into jails, into all sorts of areas, and also termination services through the 1970s. How did you build family planning's higher profile and the bigger role in sex education in the community? Well, I had a good product. Sex is in, in, incredibly interesting to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> But it's ne- it was never talked about. So no, that's right. Didn't but everyone kind of say, oh, no, we don't no, want to talk about well, that. We certainly I, don't want children to I just, know about I it. I mean, I, you know, again, I've worked with a group of women, doctors, nurses, educators, a team of educators I set up who knew that it was time to take the covers off and to start talking about these things. We did not want to see the constant number of, the high number of unplanned pregnancies because that's so that was still we a big saying. issue it at was that time still in a the big issue. 70s. So teen yes. pregnancies yeah, teen and pregnancies. unwanted pregnancies. That's right. That's right. We ran an education program and I went probably went to taught in 100 um, high schools, you know, got, got yeah. it going. And, so your and personal energy and my, drive A lot of my, my personal strategy. energy. But and also identifying opportunities. So going to Film Australia and saying, will you make some films about sex? And guess who they sent along as, you know, the nice new director, Phil Noyce. And it was one of his first series. And, you know, they won prizes throughout the world. But also I could see the power of television and and also glossy magazines. So that led me to be writing for Cleo, you know, and I did that for 10 years. Yeah. And by the time I left, family planning doctors or nurses or educators wrote pretty well every column in every magazine. Fantastic. So they weren't necessarily just identified that way. And they did it for years. That's how I met Karen Phillips. Right. So you you helped that organisation yeah. become central to the community. Yes. And then in this, this media it. profile, yeah. yeah, to give sort of good common sense, factual information about yeah. sex. Yeah. Yep. And family planning. Yeah. You were then appointed to the National Women's Advisory Council in 1978, I think it was, established by the Fraser government to advise government on women's issues. Now, that advisory council, Women's Advisory Council agenda was essentially the same as well back in 1972, so sort of six years later. the shock of the Liberal government, really. It was what? I mean, and the Liberal government was quite shocked, even though it was a prime ministerial council, how quickly it became really the... And that's why the women who want to be women and other people who protested against it were enraged. That Beryl Beaurepaire, who was the president of the Liberal Party and the leader and convener of that council, Dame Beryl, she believed in that agenda. I mean, she didn't identify it as a well agenda, but in a way it was a common sense agenda. It was equal pay? Equal pay, education for women, um, Maternity uh, leave. Maternity leave. Access uh, to uh, family planning services. And, and 
um, we said 24-hour childcare, but of course, now we now call it early learning and uh, and childcare because we know a lot more about it. But it, that was very important, and we don't we didn't then talk about women's leadership, but we did talk about access to political leadership. Okay, so at a very senior level, at a prime ministerial level, they wanted to know what women needed and wanted, and yet still. In 2022, we are still wrestling with, and it's been painstakingly slow progress, really, Wendy, would you agree, on many of these issues. We're still arguing about and fighting for access to childcare, um, maternity leave, those sorts of things. And it did take probably 50 years for some of those things to come in. Well, I think it, I, I think that I've discovered somewhere in the 90s <clears throat> that the gains that we made in the 70s weren't going to continue in an incremental, organised way, which is how I assumed it would happen. I could see, I thought I could see the virtue of it and other people could, and um, that's what would happen. But we never, and I think we never really anticipated the fight back, and the fight back was particularly bitter in terms of um, reproductive rights. Uh, and I think the fight back also came because John Howard really, he disassembled the furniture and the building of opportunities for women. He set, took off the Affirmative Action Agency. He didn't pursue the hawk agenda of putting women on government boards. I would never have been put on as Deputy Chair of the ABC if there hadn't been an assumption that they would make the do the best when they set up a new ABC corporation instead of a commission to make sure that they had good female representation on that board. Now, Howard didn't agree with that and he monetized childcare, he monetized aged care, and we're paying the penalty for that now. You've had so many pivotal building up roles. As you just mentioned, you're on the board of the ABC for eight years. You helped build support for the bicentenary and those bicentenary events. You founded and built the, or we helped found and built the Sydney Community Foundation. And, and within that, you and Lucy Brogdon founded its Women's Fund in 2007. What is the key or the, the keys to building those sorts of organisations, building consensus in the community to help support and fund those organisations? Well, I think the first thing, Helen, is seeing, being opportunistic, seeing where the opportunity. And before that, in the 90s, I founded Corporate Good Works and Corporate Good Works matched government needs, uh, social needs with opportunities for corporations to support the growth of that. So, for example, I went to Citibank and I raised $2 million from Citibank with, under Corporate Good Works and it was to pick up on the opportunities of corporate social responsibility and that was for an Aboriginal leadership program. And I see those people 22 years later. So you, you don't think it's fast enough, but I know how slow social change can be and I know now that steady growth and steady acceptance makes a much more lasting adventure. So the the energy of the 70s and the early 80s was a combination of international support, and that started to fade around the 1990s, and maybe that was just the trajectory of a social movement. So we've had to pick it up again. We still don't have equal pay, and we don't have enough early learning, and 
going private was probably a very big mistake because it makes assumptions that we should all have to pay for childcare and, and early learning at that level, whereas I think it's a national investment. So, But you I got could, involved in early learning, didn't yes, you, through all, Good Start? All, all, good Start for 10 years. But also, I've always been interested. I mean, for me, women's education is the single greatest achievement of the feminist movement of the late 60s and 70s. And I think, and I think that looking back... And I say, if I constructed a ballot sheet, there are plenty of ways that you could see that we are a long way ahead of the women in terms of our rights and our social recognition. We do sit on boards. 30% isn't enough, but it's better than what it was when I went there and I was mostly often the only woman on the board. So there are lots of gains and... Yes, I'm not trying to suggest there no, no, aren't, I know, but, but equal I, and, pay is an interesting one. I try and explain to my daughter, she said, didn't it? Wasn't it legislated? Yes, what? Three, at, th- at least three times. Mary Gordon says, you know, we've been in the court three times. But what Why they do is the changing is- rules because the feminisation of industries that women want to work in and that there are, the, the, there are almost what I call the invisible monitors of women's movement changes, women's progress. It's like the clerk saying to me, you wouldn't go to work after you've had a baby. Well, it hadn't occurred to me until then that I wouldn't. And then I begin to worry, you know, what sort of a mother am I going to be? And how do girls ask, young girls, young women, ask against the assumptions of young men and the company about a rise in pay and equal pay? It's tough. They need other people to do it. That's why I set up mentoring business. And, you know, that's why I've I, you know, I had a, I have a business called Women's Business, and occasionally I pull out the business name and I use it for something. I train the women to go to Beijing um, to be able to represent Australia, and those little things sort of come and go. So, and I'm I am a builder of new ideas into structures that I hope will be sustainable. And when they when that happens. I'm kind of looking for the next opportunity. <laughs> what are your markers of success now if you look back on your journey as I'm calling you an entrepreneur and yes. I think you would consider no, yourself I, I, an entrepreneur. I do think I'm an entrepreneur, but I, it's mostly the, my products are mostly ideas and behaviours. Yeah, and, yeah. and consensus building yeah. and building organisations yeah. perhaps particularly in the not-for-profit area. Um, I think my markers are, first of all, people accepting that this is a good idea that we can do something about Secondly, that we would, and so we convene around the idea and we think how it could happen. I mean, the behaviour in Parliament House um, is one thing. I mean, the behaviour around the Australian of the Year is another example. And the, the discourse is not respectful in terms of women's ideas. And that is deeply disturbing and deeply disappointing. And we need to have more equity in these decision-making places so that we can ensure we have better. So the success marker is gaining enough interest for people to trust and hear their own voices and speak out. That's why I so admire Brittany and Grace. They speak out. Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. Correct, yes. In part two next week, Wendy McCarthy on her own journey as an entrepreneur and how she helped build the political campaign that successfully saw Dr. Karen Phelps elected as independent MP in the seat of Wentworth, formerly a blue ribbon liberal stronghold. 
I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.